Amen. If you would turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. It's a glorious time of year. Love the Christmas time. Let me read for us the first 18 verses of John chapter 1. And we'll pray that God would help us to see the importance of uh, his word in our lives and be reminded of the importance of Christmas and what it means for all of us. John chapter 1. In verse 1 it says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we, and we saw his glory, glorious, the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for this season. We thank you for the opportunity to be reminded of the truth that we've heard in various ways, many times in our lives, at least most of us, many of us have. And yet, we can lose sight of what this season is truly about. And we can fail to see ourselves in light of it. And so we pray that you would help us to see you in fresh and new ways, to see ourselves in fresh and new ways, and that you'd help us to trust you in the ways we need to trust you right now today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, well, many of us are aware of the fact that in a lot of movies, um, people will show up unexpectedly. Uh, famous people or even the directors of the movies or the writers or uh, creators of the movies, like in The Lord of the Rings, there are cameos by um, Peter Jackson, just a short uh, role that he plays, or 
uh, Stan Lee in the Marvel movies will show up and play just a small uh, role in a, in a scene, just briefly appearing. And um, the roles they play are really insignificant to uh, the bigger picture. And sometimes um, it feels like at Christmas time uh, that is the role that Jesus plays. Uh, for most people, he's sort of a cameo. He's co- sort of a small part of the season for a lot of people, especially in our country where we have this history of uh, the Judeo-Christian uh, culture. And uh, so Christ is a part of the picture, but he's not necessarily a big part. He's not necessarily uh, the real main character in the story for a lot of people. And that's the challenge of the season, is not allowing that for us as Christians to be the case. That we don't see the birth of Christ as a cameo in the Christmas season, but we see the coming of Christ as being the story, the main uh, story of history, at the very center of what God has done, at the very center of the story that God has written and is playing out before our very eyes. And that's why I think the biggest problem at Christmas time is not commercialism per se or pagan ritual brought into it per se, but just simply ignorance. The biggest problem is not making the the appropriate connection to Jesus and seeing him the way he needs to be seen. There's an ignorance of who he really is. And if you look at the four Gospels that we have in the New Testament, they all start uh, differently. Uh, They don't start the same way. And yet two of them, Matthew and Luke, start with the story of the birth of Christ one way or the other. Mark doesn't have anything about the birth of Christ. It just starts with the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus coming on the scene. John is different in that he doesn't talk about the birth of Christ per se in terms of Mary and Joseph and Bethlehem. He talks about what happens before the birth of Christ so that we understand who it is that was born on Christmas Day in Bethlehem. When I say um, the biggest problem is ignorance, I say that in light of what John says in this first chapter. In verse 10, he says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. And then in verse 26, he'll go on to talk about the ministry of John the Baptist, where uh, John is talking to some people who are basically asking him, who are you and why are you doing what you're doing? And he says, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. And then in verse 31, uh, John even says, I didn't even know who he was until I baptized him and I saw the Holy Spirit descend upon him. He says in verse 31, John says, I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. And then in verse 33, he says again, I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And so you have this theme running through John chapter one of he appeared to the people that he created, and they did not know who he was. And so the real problem with 
our, our failure to celebrate Christmas appropriately is that we are not seeing Jesus for who he is. He's, he's not just a cute baby in the manger, and he's not just a great teacher, though he was both, I'm sure. It's interesting, if you read the book Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, he talks about this whole dynamic of um, how strange it must have sounded to the Jewish people to hear someone show up and say in various ways, I'm God. In fact, I'm the God of the Old Testament that um, called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans and brought him to the promised land. I'm, I'm the God of the Old Testament that led you out of Egypt. Um, because, for one, they believe God to be one. And they believe God to be a spirit. They thought it would be blasphemy for God to be shown at, in, in an idol form, in a physical form. And so, therefore, how could he show up in a physical form as a real man? Wouldn't that be blasphemous too? They couldn't imagine that that would actually happen. And yet Jesus showed up, as C.S. Lewis said, going about talking as if he was God. Usually when we hear people talking as if they're God, uh, we think there's something wrong with them. And that's exactly what the Jewish people, or at least many of them, thought, especially the Pharisees. Uh, C.S. Lewis said, what this man said, speaking of Jesus, was quite simply the most shocking thing that has ever been uttered by human lips. We hear the Christmas story all the time about Jesus being born and living and all that he did, and it's become just so commonplace that we don't really understand what a shocking thing it was for someone to say that he was God, the Son of God, that he existed um, before Abraham. For John to even say he existed before I existed. And those kinds of things. Um, he goes on in this section in Mere Christianity to say, can you imagine a man showing up and saying to someone who hurt you deeply, your sins are forgiven? Think about that. He hurt you, and as far as you knew, he didn't hurt Jesus, but Jesus was saying, you know what you did? I forgive you for that. And never talking to anybody about whether or not they thought it was a good idea for Jesus to say that they were forgiven. This man's going around forgiving people, and maybe I don't want him to go around forgiving those people because they hurt me deeply. And he's talking, C.S. Lewis said, as if someone, that as if he was someone who was actually ultimately most hurt by them. He says, he told people that their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult all the other people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. He unhesitatingly behaved as if he was the party chiefly concerned, the person chiefly offended in all offenses. This makes sense only if he was really the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. And so Jesus is going around saying things, I'm God, your sins are forgiven, and it had to be incredibly jolting to the Jewish people. And yet he said, I am humble and meek. 
And C.S. Lewis said, well, if anybody goes around talking like that, you would think that would be the last thing people would think is that he was truly humble and meek. If I said, I'm God, you ought to be worshiping me, and I can forgive your sins, that doesn't sound very humble unless you are God and if you can forgive sins. So that's why C.S. Lewis talks about his famous uh, dilemma when he says, you've only got three options. Either Jesus was a liar, or he was a lunatic, or he was who he said he was. And actually, if you read John very closely, you find out that the Pharisees, religious leaders, actually accused him of being both a lunatic and having a demon, basically the devil. They did not believe he was Lord. And that's really our only three options. Either he is he, who he said he was, or he's a crazy man, or he's the devil himself, intentionally deceiving people. So he can't just be a great teacher. Great teachers don't go around saying, I'm God, worship me, unless they are God, and they should be worshipped. So what he concludes that section by saying is, he says, God has landed on this enemy-occupied world in human form. And basically, we all have to deal with that claim. Jesus didn't give us the the option of saying, oh, he's just a cute baby in the manger, or he's a great teacher. The options are he's either Lord or he's someone we should have nothing to do with. He's either a crazy person or he's the devil. And so that's what Christmas really challenges us with, is that truth. And that's why John starts where he starts in his gospel, by saying that the baby that was born on Christmas existed before he was born. And he existed before he was born because he is God. And so that's why I start with just the point, uh, the life before the womb. Obviously, we talk about life in the womb. We talk about life after the womb. What John talks about is life before the womb. In verse 15, John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. He says the same thing in verse 30. He says, this is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. And what John does in in the first few verses of this chapter is he talks about Jesus' pre-existence before he was born in Uh, through the Virgin Mary. It says in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So he says, in the beginning was the Word. He's at the very beginning of time, as we would call it. And he was with God, but he was also God himself. So John is making a distinction between uh, the Word and God, that in one sense they're different. And at the same time, they're the same. And he says very clearly that he was the one through which everything was made. So in one sense, he was before creation. In another sense, he was at creation. And he was the one through which everything was made. The whole idea of the word is an interesting thing because 
for Greek people, uh, the idea of the word of the logos was the reason behind everything, the rational principle behind everything that happens in the universe. We talk about the idea that God is sovereign over everything and that ultimately he rules and reigns over everything. For the Greeks, that was the logos. It was the rational principle behind everything. And so John begins by talking about Jesus in terms of the logos as being the reason behind everything. In Colossians, it says, all things were created by him and for him. He's the reason for everything. The Jews would see the word as relating to the wisdom of God. And that's why in Proverbs 8, uh, wisdom is personified. It's um, talked about as if wisdom itself was a person. And that's why it says uh, in verse 1 of Proverbs 8, Does not wisdom call and understanding lift up her voice? I, wisdom, dwell with prudence and I find knowledge and discretion. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way before his works of old. From everlasting I was established from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While I had not yet made the earth and the fields with the first dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed a circle in the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when he set for the sea its boundary so that the water would not transgress his command when he marked out the foundations of the earth then i was beside him as a master workman and i was daily his delight rejoicing always before him rejoicing in the world his earth and having my delight in the sons of men and so you've got in one sense the idea of god's wisdom being with god when he creates everything and yet this wisdom is personified. It's talked about as if it wasn't simply a characteristic of God or a, uh, something that uh, God could do or something that God possessed, but it was actually a person, God himself. And so what we see happening here is what was a principle for the Greeks and what was a kind of power even for the Jews of that day and time was really a person. They may not have seen it that way in light of Proverbs 8, but that was really the implications of it as John lays it out for us here. And so he says, because wisdom isn't simply a power or a principle, but a person, in verse 3, all things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And that means you and me. Why are you here? Because Jesus created you, made you, and put you here. That's why I'm here. Everything that was created, everything that has been made, has come by Jesus and for Jesus. And then he goes on in John chapter 1. He says in verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. The word dwelt is the word uh, for tabernacled. Many of you probably have heard this many times before, but it's the idea of pitching your tent. 
And it's a reference to the Old Testament in that God dwelt among his people in the wilderness, in the tabernacle, and then during the days of David and Solomon and the kings in the temple. And that's why you could read verses like what we find in Exodus 40, where it says, And the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So you've got the glory of God manifested in the tabernacle. And then in 1 Kings 8, it says, It happened that when the priest came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So you've got the glory of the of the Lord and the temple. And so John is making a connection between the Old Testament tabernacle and temple and the body of Jesus. Jesus takes on a body. Later on, he says, you can destroy this temple in three days. I will raise it up. And the glory of God was manifested in the temple of God, which is being pictured here as his humanity. And so God uh, is being exalted in the person of Jesus, being seen in the person of Jesus. So John is starting out by saying that Jesus did not just begin existing when he was born. He existed before he was born. In fact, he was born because he was sent from heaven. He was sent with a mission. Many times when we think about babies being born, whether it's grace or some other baby that we rejoice in, we think about them being born, but we don't often think about this baby has been born to do something. Although that's true from a Christian perspective, if we understand what the Bible says. But for Jesus being born, many people looked at that, but they didn't necessarily see that he was being sent by God from heaven to accomplish certain things. And yet, in verse 9, it says, There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. Meaning, part of his purpose was to help us to see things that we could not see otherwise. He had a purpose, a mission coming into the world. And later on, if you read on in the book of John, in John 3, verse 13, Jesus says, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the son of man, basically me. I'm the only one that has seen heaven as it is and has come down from heaven. And God sent his son. And the question is, why did he send Jesus? What's the significance of him coming. And so let me just touch on this very briefly. But if you read through John, the whole um, chapter of John chapter 1, there are several things that John highlights. First thing is he talks about the issue of the word, and we've talked about that a little bit, logos. There are other aspects of the word. When we think of a word, what do we think about? We think about what I'm doing right now, speaking. And how do you know what I'm thinking? By what I say. How do I know what you're thinking by what you say? How do I know what your heart is, what your desires are, your interests are, uh, what's going on inside of you? How do I know what is unseen? You tell me something that reveals what I can't see. can't read your mind. 
I can't look inside of you and know what's going on. But Jesus is the word also in the sense that he is God speaking. God revealing what we could not know otherwise. God saying to us things that we could not see otherwise. In fact, it's interesting, John Calvin would translate logos, um, the speech. He would say, Jesus is the speech of God. And so he says, as speech is said to be among men, the image of the mind... So it is not inappropriate to apply this to God and to say that he reveals himself to us by his speech. That's why Hebrews chapter 1 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his son. And then in verse 3, it goes on to say, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. So, if I go back to Mike and I say, Mike, what's on your heart? What's going on? He would have to speak to me to let me know that. How has God let us know his heart through Jesus? If I really want to know the heart of God, then I look at Jesus, I listen to Jesus, that he speaks, obviously, through his words, but he also speaks through his life. And so, no man man has seen God, right? It says, no one has seen God. God is a spirit. He has no body as we do, as it says in the uh, catechism. He's not someone to be seen physically, The only way we can know the unseen God is through the seen God. And the seen God is Jesus. And he reveals the heart of God. That's so important in so many ways. There's another picture that John uses here in this um, passage. It's the picture of light. In several places he talks about, um, in verse 4, for instance, that in him was life and the life was the light of men. Light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it and then in verse 18 he says no one has seen God at any time the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the father he has explained him it means he's he's told us about him he's narrated to us what is true about God or it's the word from which we get the word exegete he's brought out what we cannot see otherwise he's explained God to us Do you realize that when you read your Old Testament, you're reading about Jesus? There are a lot of people that think the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are so different. That would be a misunderstanding of the Bible. Because Yahweh in the Old Testament is Jesus in the New Testament. And that's why um, in John 14, you recall, uh, Philip says which is something very interesting to me. He says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Can you say that? Just show me what God's really like, and I think that will be enough for me. Just show me what God is really like, meaning the implication that he loves me, and I'm welcome to him. Show us the Father, 
And that, that's enough. He's tell, ask, talking to Jesus. And Jesus says to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. That's huge. That's huge. And so when you read the Old Testament and you think, this doesn't sound like Jesus to me, well, just know that you're not understanding what you're reading. You need to understand the Old Testament through the revelation of Jesus in the New Testament. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to explain what God is really like and to deliver us from our misconceptions about God because we all have them and they all those misconceptions afflict us terribly and he came to set us free from those afflictions by explaining who God really is and so he is the God who speaks he is the God who shows us what God is really like and he's also the God who serves um, it talks about in verse 14 um, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glorious of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. He is the God who serves in that he is the God who came to serve. But who is he serving? He's serving people who don't deserve it. He's serving sinners. He's serving people who shake their fist in his face and who spit in his face and do not want anything to do with him as long as he is God. It's okay if he wants to do them good. It's okay if he wants to give them things that they want. But as long as he's God and can tell them what to do, they don't want him. We don't want him. That's our natural bent. And so Jesus comes into enemy territory. That's what C.S. Lewis was talking about. God comes in human form in enemy territory. And he comes and does what? He serves, heals people. He tells them the truth. He shows them God and he serves them. He, John is picturing for us someone who is full of grace and truth. He's picturing for us God and it's interesting in the Old Testament when Moses asked uh, God to show him his glory. God said, um, I, will, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And so what do we see God saying? My glory is my goodness and my goodness to everyone on this planet, enemy territory, is grace, because it has to be grace. Otherwise, if I gave you what you deserved, you would be judged. But my goodness is gracious because that's what I am. That's my glory, is that I show grace to people. I show goodness to people who don't deserve it, which is my grace. And Jesus came to show us that. In fact, later on in the book of John, he washes the disciples' feet. He does the... The lowest thing that he could do besides the cross. He washed the disciples' feet. He shows us and is exemplified before us grace. Next, what this chapter highlights is he highlights the fact that ultimately that grace, 
wasn't just doing miracles and it wasn't just telling us the truth. As important as those things were, ultimately, we needed saving. We needed to be forgiven. We needed someone to fulfill God's law on our behalf and then to die in our place. We needed a substitute. And so he is the God who saves. And that's why later on in the ministry of John the Baptist, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then he says it again later, Behold the Lamb of God. A lot of people look at that phrase, the Lamb of God, and say it's hard to know what the Jews would have heard in the, in the first century when someone said that because it's not connected clearly to anything in the Old Testament other than maybe the fact that the most prominent animal sacrificed in the Old Testament was the lamb. And so they may have connected it to just the sacrificial system in general. But to me, someone has said, when he said, Behold the Lamb of God, maybe what he was doing was answering Isaac's question. Because there was a time when Abraham was told to take his son, his only beloved son, and sacrifice him. And Abraham gets up to the point of drawing the knife and ready to slay his son. And he stopped. He's told not to slay his son. And a ram caught in the thicket is provided as a substitute. But in that whole process, along the way, and they people think that Isaac must have been 17 or 18 or older. He wasn't a little boy. He wasn't someone, Abraham, who was already, um, you know, practically over 100, I guess, by this time. He wasn't a little boy that Abraham could easily wrap up and put on an altar. Uh, Isaac would have had to have climbed up on that altar by himself. But on the way, Isaac is looking at his father And he says, Behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. God will provide for himself the lamb. And so John shows up and says, Behold the lamb. Behold the Lamb, the Lamb of God that Isaac was looking for. He has shown up the substitute that we all need. Then finally, uh, this chapter talks about the fact that he is the God who shows up in the person of the baby Jesus as the God who satisfies. Now, the reason why I say that is at the end of the chapter, people are beginning to Uh, be attracted to Jesus now that he's begun his ministry. And Andrew finds Peter, and Philip finds Nathaniel. And Nathaniel is brought to Jesus, and um, Jesus makes the comment about Nathaniel, um, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit, in verse 47. And Nathaniel, who has already said, How could anything good come out of Nazareth? He's not too... Uh, inclined to think that Jesus is really anything special. But he goes to see, and um, he asks the question, how do you know who I am, Jesus? And Jesus says, uh, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. You're under the fig tree. 
And Nathanael answers saying, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now what's going on there? Evidently, Jesus saw Nathanael in a place doing something that only God could have known that he was doing. Or someone who actually had a very special relationship to God, like the Messiah. The title Son of God and King of Israel come from scriptures in the Old Testament like Psalms chapter 2, where it says in verse 6, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So the Jewish people understood the title Son of God and King of Israel as a messianic designation. So did he know at that point that he was God in the flesh? Probably not. But did he know or believe at that point that he was the Messiah? Yes. And Jesus says in response to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What is that all about? Remember the story in the Old Testament where Jacob uh, lays down to sleep and he takes a, a stone for a pillow and he has a dream. And the dream that he has is of a ladder reaching from earth and to heaven. And angels are going up and down the ladder, ascending and descending. And Jesus says, I'm that ladder. You're going to see greater things than supernatural knowledge of what you were doing under the fig tree, having your quiet time or whatever you're doing. You're going to see something greater. You're going to see someone greater than just what you think is the Messiah, as you would define the Messiah. You will see that I am the fulfillment of all that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you continue to read in John chapter 2, right after that incident with uh, Nathaniel, there's a story about Jesus and his disciples at that point and his mother being invited to a wedding. And the wine runs out at the wedding. And at first, Jesus says, you know, my time has not come when his mother Mary comes to him and says, they're out of wine. And to be out of wine was a big deal because um, if you threw a wedding for someone, you were expected to match whatever other people's weddings looked like. It was kind of payback time. Uh, So if you fed people well at your daughter's wedding, uh, when they had a daughter that married, you had to match that. And you had to provide abundantly for the guests at the wedding. And it was a terrible social faux pas to run out of food and drink and anything that people expected. And so the, the, the lack of wine was actually a major problem. Whereas we would think, oh, what's the big deal? It was a huge deal. And so what happens is Jesus turns the water into wine, as we probably know. And the person in charge of the wedding says, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. 
but you've kept the good wine until now. And then the commentary on that is this. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This was his first miracle, which means it has great significance in terms of what we are to understand Jesus' ministry to be about. It's about turning water into wine. Wine was very commonly understood as necessary for joy. Uh, The rabbinic uh, saying was, without wine there is no joy. And so Jesus is saying, my whole mission and ministry is about bringing people joy that don't have it. That's what it's all about. And it's connected to his glory. It's my goodness to give sinners who don't have joy the joy that their heart longs for. That's the tone of Jesus' ministry. And yet there's something else that's important here. The next thing that's talked about in John chapter 2 is the cleansing of the temple. And it happened twice in the ministry of Jesus. It happened at the end of his ministry, but it also happened at the beginning. But it's only recorded in John at the beginning of his ministry. And he goes in and he cleanses the temple. And it says that that was a fulfillment of the fact that he had a zeal for God's house that consumed him. So when you think about the role of the king in the Old Testament, the role of the king was to satisfy his people and to deliver them from their enemies. The picture of the providing the wine is the perfect king who satisfies his people. He meets their needs. He provides the good that their hearts long for and he delivers them from their enemies. That's what's being pictured in the life and ministry of Jesus. Well, let me conclude by bringing us to the last point, which is the practical part of all this that John highlights in verses 10 through 13, that Jesus, in light of all that he came to do, is still a gift that can be received or rejected. And that's the reality at Christmas time. We can receive gifts but we may reject them one way or the other. In verse 10, it says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He basically makes the point that you don't become a part of God's family through natural birth. You don't become a part of God's family just because you're good enough or you will it to be so by yourself. You don't become a part of God's family because someone in authority on earth says you can be. But it's by being born of God, begotten of God. But he starts out by saying that Jesus was in the world, the world was made through him, the world didn't know him, and he came to his own. And someone has said that could be translated, he went home. He went home. And someone tried to describe what the implication of of that is, and they described it this way. 
someone pictures someone coming home at the end of a hard day's toil. He is worn out by the exertions of the day, glad to be finished with his work and looking forward to being at home with his family. His step quickens as he gets near his home. He feels in his pocket for his key, but it is not there. Somehow he has misplaced it. But that does not matter. The family is at home. So he goes up to the front door and rings the bell. And nothing happens. No one opens to him. They are there, and they know that he is there. The curtain at the window is drawn back a little, and eyes that he knows so well look out and see him. But they leave him standing there. That's the picture of he came to his own. He went home. He rang the bell. Nobody answered. Wasn't because they didn't know he was there. Wasn't because they didn't know who he was, so to speak. In a sense, they didn't know who he was. In another sense, they did know who he was. And they didn't want to have anything to do with him. Well, Christmas is a, a celebration, but for some people it's just a celebration. It's a party time, it's a gift-giving time, it's a fun time. Um, Christmas is a story, certainly, and for many people, unfortunately, it's just a story. There's nothing supernatural about Christmas. It's just a story. Uh, for some, it's a comforting myth or maybe even a mythical, mythical crutch that people lean on. Uh, for some, it's a way of controlling the masses, this whole Christianity thing. For others, it's just another way of trying to be good. You know, you pick your way to be good, I pick my way to be good, and we're all going to be good. But the reality is, John is picturing the fact, and many people see the Gospel of John as a track, so to speak, uh, and he pictures Christmas as a divine offer of deliverance. John Calvin said, Christ therefore offers himself to us by the gospel, and we receive him by faith, or not. We either receive him and we receive him by faith, or we don't. And that's why later on in John chapter 3, it says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. When it says that they either believe in the name of of Jesus or they don't, what does that mean? Well, the Gospels present the fact that Jesus is perfect God, perfect man, the divine Savior, and the divine King. To receive Jesus is to receive him as that. God, man, Savior, and King. 
And if we receive him, then we believe in his name. If we receive him in that way, if we just receive him as a little baby in a manger, that's not believing in his name. If we just receive him as a great teacher, it's not believing in his name. It's seeing God in Jesus. It's seeing perfect man in Jesus. It's seeing the Savior in Jesus. It's seeing the King that I ought to bow my knee to and follow and worship in Jesus. That's why the song, Mary, Did You Know, is a, an amazing song. Because it basically asks that question of Mary, do you really know who that is that you're giving birth to? I, I might say, Harry, did you know? You know, go to the guy on the street who's celebrating Christmas. Harry, did you know that the person that's talked about this little baby that's born at Christmas time, do you really know that he's God, perfect God, perfect man, divine Savior and divine King? It, do you know that? The song says, Mary, did you know that your baby boy will give sight to a blind man? Mary, did you know that your baby boy will calm the storm with his hand? Did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? When you kiss your little baby, you kiss the face of God. Mary, did you know that your baby boy is Lord of all creation? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day rule the nations? Did you know that your baby boy is heaven's perfect lamb? That sleeping child you're holding is the great I am. Mary, did you know? Harry, did you know? Do we know the Christmas story is about the life before Christmas? And it's a story that has great weight. And it asks us whether or not we've received the gift that has been given. Let's pray. As we pray, let me just ask the question as you think about this in the quietness of your own heart. What do you see when you look at Jesus? What do you see when you look at Jesus? And then secondly, what does he see when he looks at you? What does he see when he looks at you? Does he see one who's received him or not? Father, I pray that you would just speak to our hearts and help us to see where we are before you. Help us to see whether or not we've truly seen Jesus as he is and whether or not we've truly received him or not. Pray for those who have not yet received him, that you would open their eyes to see him as he is and that they would, even this day, receive him for who he truly is and rejoice forevermore in it. And for those of us who have received him, we pray that you would meet us as we celebrate this Lord's Supper and acknowledge the great gift you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.